0: Sadly, uh, Father Ian Kerr has come down with some real illness, the flu, and is in bed. Say a prayer for him. So he couldn't come. So I'm going to read his paper. But uh, after we've read the paper, I've asked uh, Dr. Reinhard Tüter and um, uh, and Dr. Mazaros to come up on the podium with me, and we'll we'll take Q and A and do discussion. And uh, we will we don't promise to try to channel Father Kerr, but we will we will try to answer uh, the theological questions that may emerge from his presentation, okay? Let me begin by making a few introductory remarks. It, It seems to me that in our own historical moment, the church is challenged, interpolated, by the problem of the development of doctrine as a theological question of central importance for three reasons at least. The first is that the Second Vatican Council teaches us, rightly, That the scriptures are the soul of theology that theology takes its first principles and impulses from the apostolic doctrine and the prophetic revelation given to israel however we also know there's an acute problem of the interpretation of scripture of deciphering its inner unity and meaning with respect to the challenge of modern historical exegesis and modern historical consciousness regarding the composition hypothetical questions about the composition of scripture and its interpretation. And this allied with other historical thorny issues such as the post-apostolic reception of scripture and its complex reception of interpretation in the church in the patristic age, the scholastic age, and the modern age. How ought we to negotiate and understand the historical unfolding of divine revelation as it's given and in its subsequent Uh, reception by the church. A second problem is that of the relationship between ontology and theology. Every theology needs to have some kind of realistic understanding of how Revelation appears to us in the very order of things and therefore what the very order of things is. The nature of reality, the study of being. Classical ontology provided a format for this and was assimilated into the teaching of the church in the patristic age and in an especially developed way in the thought of the great scholastic masters. However, today, not only do we face frontal challenges to the classical ontological heritage elaborated in the modern and postmodern periods in different ways, we also face increasingly a cultural climate of pure heterogeneity of non-philosophical, non-consent in the order of philosophical reflection on ontology. So that the question of which ontological set of sources we might use and how we might make use of ontology as a necessary dimension of theology is a vexed and vexing question. And it touches on how we develop doctrine to articulate it in philosophical terms in any given age and in our own age of confusion in, in this very issue. And the third and final point I think shouldn't be mentioned is the question of the political and ethical life of the church in our own historical moment. The church rightly considers herself assigned the duty by Christ and God to articulate the perennial truth of human nature, the natural law, and the social principles of human political ethics in every age, perennial principles. But she also confronts the changing circumstances of human political society, and in her own development of doctrine and her own ethical teachings, confronts changes on issues like slavery, usury, all the, all the very controversial questions in our society today about marriage and sexuality, the changing terrain of what warfare is, or terrorism, or incarceration, or political punishment, and how political life should be organized in relation to economics and government life, democratic structures and non-democratic structures, and so forth. And all of these sets of uh, diverse uh, political and ethical questions pose to the church very important challenges in thinking about how doctrine develops as it's articulated in different cultural times and places political and ethical circumstances, without, of course, embracing any kind of relativism, and precisely in order to talk about how the perennial principles of the teaching move forward in time. In this context, Aquinas and Newman both stand as invaluable resources. We know that Newman uh, has as a central characteristic of his thought the uh, seven notes of the development of doctrine, which we'll come to shortly. But Aquinas also has a certain theory of development of doctrine, which we'll hear about today. And 20th century Thomistic scholastics engage with Newman, and Newman's thought anticipates in a certain way a, an engagement with Aquinas, precisely because his own thought touches on so many of these themes, which in turn Thomists and themselves wrestle with. And now that Newman is a saint, and may, in fact, have a place that is, you might say, doctoral, I'm not saying he will be a doctor of the church, but it seems like a, a, a probable possibility. It's all the more incumbent on us to think about how to con, uh, consider Newman and Aquinas in relation to one another on these key themes like development of doctrine, conscience, the notion of university education, these major places where they they have coinciding themes. Ian Kerr is, as we many of us know, the most reputed and leading scholar of John Henry Newman in the world today. He has taught in universities in both the United States and Britain, but has had the the greater part of his career uh, at the University of Oxford while also functioning as a parish priest in the English countryside outside of Oxford with a very uh, um, energetic apostolate as a a parish priest. It's quite impressive. He's the author of the seminal work from 1988, John Henry Newman, A Biography, which is also effectively in practice the best introduction to the thought of John Henry Newman since this massive work goes through all the major works of uh, Newman and gives a summary of them. He is also the author of uh, the massive a biography of G.K. Chesterton from uh, 2011 from uh, Oxford University Press. He's written a a number of more popular and accessible works on Newman, uh, among which I would strongly recommend two. One is Newman and the Fullness of Christianity, which is an excellent work to give someone interested in Catholicism as a, question, as a question about whether Catholicism is as a word of genuine plenitude of Christianity. Someone often coming from a, a Protestant background would be very great, greatly helped by that important work. And uh, his 2014 book, which I'm particularly partial to myself, Newman on Vatican II, Newman on Vatican II. And it is, uh, uh, but Father um, Kerr worked extensively in also editing Newman's letters, uh, and has many, many resources and books on the subject Newman. His paper today is an outtake from the Newman on Vatican II book. I think you all have copies of it. we have copies of all the papers for everyone for every session. And the question he wanted to ask and which is posed by this paper is effectively the question are Newman's tests or notes of authentic doctrinal development of any practical use? And so, without further ado, I will read his paper. In what has become a famous speech, Pope Benedict XVI in 2005, at the outset of his pontificate, contrasted two rival interpretations of the Second Vatican Council. On the one hand, there was an inter- uh, interpretation that he would that he would call a hermeneutic of continuity and rupture. On the other hand, there was the hermeneutic of reform or renewal in the continuity of the one subject church, which the Lord has given to us. She is a subject which increases in time and develops, yet always remaining the same. Or as the Pope put it five years later, the council did not reformulate anything new in matters of faith, nor did it wish to replace what was ancient. Rather, it concerned itself with seeing that the same faith might continue to be lived in the present day. In his essay on the development of Christian doctrine, Newman makes exactly the same point when he writes that as a fact, which impresses an idea of itself on our minds, Christianity changes in order to remain the same. This process is what Newman means by development. When on the one hand an idea like that of Christianity changes only to become something different, then there is not a development but corruption. I venture, Newman writes, to set down seven notes of varying cogency, independence, and applicability to discriminate healthy developments from an idea, of an idea from its state of corruption and decay. These seven notes then, which he calls tests in the first edition of the essay, are by his own admission only seven out of various notes, which may be assigned, of fidelity in the development of an idea. But are they of any real value? In 1839, Newman began to have his first doubts about Anglicanism. He became aware of the hitch in the Anglican argument that while the Roman Catholic Church could clearly claim Catholicity, the Anglican Church could claim apostolicity The Anglican argument that Rome had added to the original apostolic doctrine was undermined by the fact that, for example, the Anglican Church accepted Pope Leo's formulation of the doctrine that Christ was one person with two natures at the Council of Chalcedon several centuries after the time of the apostles. Here was a clear post-apostolic development of doctrine. If Anglicanism could not be defended without invoking the principle of doctrinal development, how is it possible to object to later developments of doctrine by the Roman Catholic Church? If these were illegitimate accretions or additions, why were those doctrines which Anglicans shared with Roman Catholics, but which were sometimes less clearly to be found in Scripture and the Fathers, not also illegitimate? By the end of 1844, Newman was practically certain that the Church of England, far from being a branch of the Catholic Church, was in schism, and the Roman Catholic Church was the same church as the Church of the Fathers. To test his growing conviction, he decided to write an essay on the development of Christian doctrine, which he left unfinished on his reception into the Roman Catholic Church in October 1845. The basic historical fact with which Newman begins is the sheer extent of change in Christianity over the centuries. The question then naturally arises, has there been any real continuity of doctrine since the age of the apostles? Newman's answer is that if Christianity is a living idea, then it necessarily grows into a body of thought which will after which will all be little after all be little more than the proper representative of one idea, being in substance that what that idea meant from the first its complete image as seen in a combination of diversified aspects with the suggestions and corrections of many minds and the illustration of many experiences. It is the process by which the aspects of an idea are brought into consistency and form, which Newman calls its development, being the germination and maturation of some truth or apparent truth on a large mental field. But this process will not be a development unless the assemblage of aspects, which constitute its ultimate shape, really belongs to the idea from which they start. In order to tell whether changes in Christian doctrine are developments or corruptions then, there must be some means of authenticating genuine developments, and so there is, Newman argues, a strong antecedent argument in favor of a provision in the dispensation for putting a seal of authority upon authentic developments. For a revelation is not given if there is no authority to decide what it is that is given And so in order to distinguish true from false developments, a supreme authority is needed. But since the great schism between the Western and Eastern churches, only the Roman Catholic Church has both developed doctrinally and claimed to have the authority to validate the developments. Newman's conclusion is that there is undeniably a very strong presumption that if there must be and are in fact developments in Christianity, the doctrines propounded by successive popes and councils are they. Newman's fundamental reason, then, for converting to the Roman Catholic Church was the necessity for development and the authority needed to authenticate such development. The seven tests, or notes, that Newman tentatively proposed for distinguishing corruptions from developments did not remove the need for such an authority. Now, it could be argued, prima facie, Newman's conversion constituted a corruption rather than a development, for after all, he was entering a church where laypeople were not encouraged to read the scriptures, where the study of the fathers was almost non-existent, and where thanks to the destruction of the theological schools by the French Revolution and the rise of extreme ultramontanism within the church, a critical theology was hardly appreciated or welcomed. These defects, however, were not intrinsic to Catholicism, but rather accidental and temporary corruptions of it. So if we disregard these unwelcoming aspects of the 19th century church that Newman entered in 1845, how far can we say that his conversion was a theological development rather than a corruption? According to the first note of preservation of type, and we will come back to these seven notes as we go on, Newman's conversion to Catholicism was a genuine, to Roman Catholicism, was a genuine development. For as he always used to say to inquirers, he became a Catholic because he was convinced that, in spite of all the obvious changes, the modern Roman Catholic church was the same church as that of the fathers. Now to quote from him extensively, now the very reason I became Catholic was because the present Roman Catholic church is the only church which is like, and it is very like, the primitive church. It is almost like a photograph of the primitive church or at least it does not differ from the primitive church near so much as the photograph of a man of 40 differs from the photograph when 20, you know that it is the same man. There was clearly no abandonment of the dogmatic principle, so the second note was present. The third note too was satisfied as Roman Catholicism was assimilated into what Newman already believed since Newman's conversion to Rome was the result of his study of the fathers in the early church There was a logic to his conversion. His childhood practice of crossing himself when going into the dark and his drawing a rosary could be said to be curious anticipations of the 1845 conversion. It is true that conversion meant the abandonment of the branch theory of the church and his charges against Rome, but otherwise there was no contradiction or reversal of the course of doctrine which had already been developed as he was to write more than 40 years later those great and burning truths which he had learned in 1816 I have found impressed upon my heart with fresh and ever increasing force by the Holy Roman Church which had added to them but obscured, diluted enfeebled nothing of them the sixth note was also therefore satisfied that sixth note is um, conservation upon the past The seventh note of chronic vigor was obviously satisfied by the fact that Newman died a Catholic, and he was to write even in the darkest period of his life as a Catholic, he had never had one moment's wavering of trust in the Catholic Church, and he would indeed be a consummate fool, to use a mild term, if in his old age he were to leave the land flowing with milk and honey for the city of confusion and the house of bondage. according to john courtney murray the theological architect of the second vatican council's declaration on religious liberty dignitatis humane it was of course the most controversial doc- document of the whole council largely because it raised with sharp emphasis the issue that lay continually below the surface of all the conciliar debates the issue of the development of doctrine this was explicitly acknowledged in the declaration itself when it said that when it says that it intends to develop the, the teaching of recent popes in Article I. How far, then, can one say that the document passes Newman's seven tests of notes of authentic development? The first and most important criterion, not that Newman says it is, but it is the one to which he devotes most easily the most space, is preservation of type. He is careful to acknowledge that this does not rule out all variation, nay, considerable alteration of proportion and relation as time goes on in the parts or aspects of an idea. In fact, he argues, appearances may be deceptive since real perversions and corruptions are often not so unlike externally to the doctrine from which they come as are changes which are consistent with it and true developments." The fact, then, that Dignitatis Humanae may appear to contradict previous teaching does not in itself mean it is not a genuine development. Before the Second Vatican Council, the condemnation of religious liberty meant that people people were not free to choose whatever religion they pleased. And it is this false idea of religious freedom that is also rejected by Dignitatis Humanae when it declares that, one true religion subsists in the Catholic and Apostolic Church, and that, quote, all men are bound to seek the truth and to embrace the truth and to hold fast to it. It also, quote, professes its belief that it is upon the human conscience that these obligations fall and exert their binding force, in Article I. Nowhere does the document speak about freedom of conscience, implying that a person has the right to do whatsoever their conscience tells them to do, simply because their conscience tells them to. Consciences can be erroneous and need to be informed, or as the Declaration puts it, every man has the duty to seek the truth in matters religious in order that he may with prudence form for himself right and true judgments of conscience with the use of all suitable means, in Article 3. Accordingly, Dignitatis Humanae is unambiguous in its conclusion, namely, that the true idea of religious freedom, which the Council intends to teach, quote, leaves untouched traditional Catholic doctrine on the moral duty of men and societies towards the true religion and towards the one Church of Christ, unquote, Article I. Had the Council failed to embrace the idea of religious freedom expressed in Dignitatis Humanae, there would have been a very real danger of a corruption arising in Catholic theology, since, as Newman points out, one cause of corruption is the refusal to follow the course of doctrine as it moves on and an obstinacy in the notions of the past. In 1858, he had congratulated Acton on an article on the kind of individual liberty which the Catholic doctrine of conscience demanded, according to Newman, a freedom which was better observed in Protestant England than in some Catholic countries. This is Newman making a judgment. There, the doctrine had been neglected in favor of the Church's teaching on the truth of the Catholic religion and the obligation of people to seek and embrace it. The classical doctrine of conscience as held by St. Thomas Aquinas, for example, was fully recognized in the Council's Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spes, and had there been a, refu- and had there been a refusal to promulgate Dignitatis Humanae, then the Council would have been guilty of an obstinacy in the notions of the past. It was the Council's job to uphold and reconcile both doctrines to distinguish indifferentism from freedom. As for the second test, or uh, note of continuity of principles, Newman, uh, recognizing that the difference between doctrines and principles sometimes depends on how we look at them, argues that the life of doctrines may be said to consist in the law or principles which they embody. Here, two principles seem to be relevant. The first is that at any moment in our history, certain aspects of what Newman called the Christian idea are inevitably stressed more than others. Thus, before the Second Vatican Council, the crucifixion, especially as represented in the sacrifice of the Mass, eclipsed the resurrection, whereas since the Council, there has been a very strong swing of the pendulum the other way. The Church must constantly be seeking to balance the different aspects without excessive imbalances. In the case of religious freedom, two doctrines are involved, the duty of all human beings to seek the true religion, which is Catholicism, and on the other hand, the sovereignty of conscience, dignitatis. Humane would seem, in holding both doctrines, to be a good example of this principle in practice. The second principle is that the Church has to take account of changing circumstances and to apply her doctrines accordingly. For instance, the traditional condemnation of usury surely still holds and is very applicable in societies like India, where bond laborers are to be found. But in economic conditions where lending money is not a form of exploitation but mutually beneficial to both parties, the church was forced to recognize that the mere physical act of lending money was not the same as what was meant by usury. Similarly, it has, been see- it, it has come to be seen that the church's condemnation of contraception applies to the marital act and not to rape. In the case of religious freedom, the first of the two doctrines stated above was assumed in a totally Catholic context like Italy to require the legal exclusion of all erroneous religions, (coughs) if only to ensure that, as the Declaration itself allows for, the just requirements of public order are observed. Nevertheless, Newman recognized that even in the 19th century, Italy was less than completely Catholic and that the church would be better off not using coercion through legal and political means In a pluralist society, the church does not have the power to impose its will and has to interpret the doctrine in a different way from that of Pio Nono. Regarding the third note, the power of assimilation or the unitive power, Dignitatis Humanae in its opening paragraph explicitly recognizes that the council is responding to external influences when it refers to the growing sense of the dignity of the human person and the importance of responsible freedom as opposed to state coercion. In other words, the church is willing to absorb ideas emanating from secular thought without fear of compromising her own essential doctrines. Or as Newman put it, the idea was never that throve and lasted, yet incorporated nothing from external sources. And certainly, he maintained, the Catholic Church can consult um, expedience more freely than other bodies, as trusting to her living tradition, and is sometimes thought to disregard principle and scruple when she is but dispensing with forms. The the declaration seems seems also easily to pass the fourth test of logical sequence. This does not necessarily mean a conscious reasoning from premises to conclusion. All that is required is that a teaching should seem to be the logical issue of the original teaching. The original teaching was that Catholicism is the true religion and that all human beings are bound in conscience to embrace it. But Dignitatis Humanae points out that the truth cannot impose itself except by virtue of its own truth and that accordingly, religious freedom is necessary to fulfill the truth of adhering to the true religion. In other words, to follow one's conscience and fulfill one's duty, one has to have the freedom to do so. After all, as the Declaration points out, it is one of the major tenets of Catholic doctrine that man's response to God must be free, and even though it admits that there have at times appeared ways of acting that were less in accord with the spirit of the gospel, nevertheless, the doctrine of the church that no one is to be coerced into faith has always stood firm. The declaration implicitly invokes Newman's fifth note, that is, anticipation of the future, whereby definitive specimens, definite specimens of advanced teaching very early occur, which in the historical course are not found till a later date. For it would be hard to imagine a better example of such early intimations of tendencies, which afterwards are fully realized, than the example of Jesus Christ himself, who bore witness to the truth but refused to impose the truth by force on those who spoke against it, as the Council says in Article 11. And Dignitatis humani shows also how this example was followed by the Apostles. Newman's sixth test or note of an authentic development of doctrine is that of conservative action upon its past, such as the development which is conservative of the course of antecedent developments being really those antecedents and something besides them. It is an addition which illustrates, not obscures, corroborates, not corrects, a body of thought from which it proceeds, a tendency conservative of what has gone before. Discussion of the first note has already shown that dignitatis humanae, preserves the two teachings that human beings are not free to choose whatever religion they choose, but they have a duty to seek and hold the true religion, and that the the true religion is to be found in the Catholic Church. The Declaration only seemed to be a departure from the previous teaching because of the way it was taken to apply in a homogeneous Catholic context. But the teaching is one thing, its interpretation and implementation another. The essential teaching has been preserved and therefore the Declaration passes Newman's sixth test. As for the seventh and final note of chronic vigor, duration is another test of a faithful development. Dignitatis, let's say duration, uh, uh, is another test of faithful development. Dignitatis Humani would seem clearly to pass the, this test if, uh, if some 50 years are anything to, to go by. True, there are still Defebrists who reject it as contrary to the constant teaching and tradition of the Church, but the church as a whole has received the teaching as authentic, and any reversal of it seems quite impossible. St. Augustine's knockdown argument against the Donatists in North Africa was securis juricat orbis terrarum. They were words that had struck Newman with such force in in the critical summer of 1839, when he had his first serious doubts about the Anglican position. Newman's own free translation of these palmary words of Augustine was, The universal church is, in its judgments, secure of truth. Judged, then, by Newman's tests or notes, Dignitatis Humanae is an authentic doctrinal development, and in the face of the rejection uh, by the Lefebvreists of the document, Newman's seven tests or notes do very usefully serve as answers to objections brought against the decisions of authority. However, they also answer those on the opposite wing of the church, who hold also that the document constitutes a rupture with past teaching, albeit in their view of a welcome rupture. Thus, in his book, A Church That Can and Cannot Change, John T. Noonan, Jr. asks how can what he calls the old message of intolerance, massively delivered over 1,500 years, be swept away by one pope and council? He correctly points out that Vatican II itself did not attempt to grapple with this question. Dignitatis Humanae Persone did not mention the teach. he's quoting here, um, Dignitatis, he's quoting Noonan, famous book by Noonan. Dignitatis Humanae Persone did not mention the teaching of the past. The fact that this document admitted mistakes in the past, uh, Noonan goes on to write, was not the same as explaining how the church could teach one thing in the past, another thing today. In Noonan's view, the dilemma for the council seemed inescapable. Admit it. You were wrong then, or you are wrong now. And he adds that this change in teaching raises another question. If 1,500 years of doctrine could be canceled by one council and pope, why could the new teaching not be trumped in turn? In his review of Noonan's book, Cardinal Avery Dulles points out first that Noonan ignores the essentially different social conditions in which the church had formerly dealt with the question of religious freedom. Far from the, this is a long quote from an article by Avery Dulles. Far from the kind of pluralist society we have become accustomed to in the West. Christian Europe in the past was a society in which religion provided the moral and cultural framework in which the society functioned. The state professed a particular religion and expected the citizens to adhere to it while making exceptions for certain minorities who were treated with varying degrees of of tolerance. An attack upon the established religion was counted as a civic offense. And so, for most of its history, Christianity functioned within a social system in which civil authorities upheld the religion of the people. The expectation was that the state would support the true religion. The Second Vatican Council still teaches that it is legitimate for the constitutional order of society to give special recognition to one religious body, such as the Catholic Church. There is another factor that needs to be taken into consideration. In the 19th century, secular liberals argued that freedom of conscience meant that the state should not concern itself with religion. Religion should be a private matter in a purely secular society this separation of church and state led to anti-clerical persecution of the church as a body in society that was the context of papal condemnations of religious freedom in the second in the 19th century not the kind of separation of church and state as understood in the united states for example as for the second vatican council dulles points out the declaration on religious freedom explicitly leaves intact the traditional catholic teaching on the moral duty of individuals and societies towards the true religion and the one Church of Christ, quoting Article I, where societies are mentioned as having obligations to the true religion. Thus, paradoxically, Noonan put himself in the same position as Archbishop Lefebvre in regarding Dignitatis Humanae as a departure from the tradition of the Church. John Courtney Murray, on on the contrary, was quite clear that it was an authentic doctrinal development. And Dulles concludes that the Council applied the unchanging principles of the right to religious freedom and the duty to uphold religious truth to the conditions of an individualist age in which almost all societies are religiously pluralist. Under such circumstances, the establishment of religion becomes the exception rather than the rule, but the principle of non-coercion of consciences in matters of faith remains constant. Uh, What I'd like to do is, we have uh, 25 minutes. I'm gonna add two comments briefly to this uh, reading, and then I'm gonna uh, invite our uh, two professors up to the podium with me, and we will open the floor. I think we have microphones, yeah. So we'll bring a microphone to you. um, uh, and So just wait to have the microphone before you ask the question so everyone can hear you. I just wanna say that um, I have two observations. The second one is a little longer. The first one is to say that although Father Kerr mentions the traditional principles that everyone is bound in conscience to seek the truth and to adhere to it when they find it in matters of religion, which he associates with uh, Thomas Aquinas and Gaudium at Spes on conscience, and a second principle that's traditional, that the faith may not be coerced, um, which he sees rooted in the proclamation of the gospel in freedom by Christ and the apostles, and uh, as a traditional principle of practice in the Catholic Church to not oblige baptism through violence or force, and as reflected in Dignitatis Humanae. I think a thing he doesn't talk about that's in Dignitatis Humanae is the freedom of the conscience to seek the truth about religion as a principle of natural law, which is a, uh, also a determination not distinctively uh, oriented towards the acknowledgment of the revealed religion, but just as a factor of natural religious inclination, generally speaking. Human beings are capable of religious uh, understanding and religious questions. And so civil society cannot impose upon them the, the burden of uh, distorting or um, uh, suppressing entirely their religious interests. I say this because if you look at the contemporary world as it unfolds today, the church's emphasis on the natural law with regards to the right to religious freedom has become increasingly important, not with regards to any kinds of classical questions uh, of pre-French revolutionary Christian monarchies, but with regards to secular governments that seek to impose uh, non-religious norms as binding on the conscience of religious peoples. And you can say, for example, if you look today in China at the mass internment of the Ouija people who are a, a, an ethnic minority, but also a Muslim minority of millions of people in which there are thought to be currently millions of people interred. A Catholic would have to say that there are errors of religious conscience held by the Muslim population, but that the Muslim population in question should not have a secular state impose upon them the conditions in which they cannot exercise their religious conscience in the way that the, mm, the impositions are occurring, it seems to me. It's a conjecture, but it seems to me a, a truth of the social doctrine of the church. And at the same time, the church would say, for example, in the Saudi Arabian Peninsula, that those minority populations such as Filipino populations, very prevalent, who work in, in often the manual industries, should have the natural and supernatural right to pursue their own religious interests and assemble for mass on Sundays and to have mass said on the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. So so you have different kinds of contexts of religious and anti-religious political context where this natural law principle, it seems to me, is of great vitality and is not something anticipated in particular by the pre-French revolutionary context but is something rooted in the tradition. The second observation I just want to make is by showing, I think, quite adroitly the connection between Noonan's legitimate, uh, you know, challenge, provocation about you are wrong then or you're wrong now, and its alignment with uh, Archbishop Lefebvre's concerns about discontinuity. I think Ian Kerr advances a point that's made, I think, more extensively by Richard Schenk, a Dominican theologian, who talks about four stances of thinking about the Council in light of Newman. Uh, Continuity exists and it's a good thing. Continuity exists and it's a bad thing. Discontinuity exists and it's a bad thing. Discontinuity exists and it's a good thing. And it's a schema, but it's a useful schema. So continuity exists and it's a good thing is the position that Ratzinger alludes to and that Ian Carr is trying to defend in this particularly thorny case of religious freedom that there is continuity between the post-conciliar and the, the conciliar teaching post-conciliar teaching and the pre-conciliar teaching, and this is important because there's an organic continuity development. Continuity existence, a bad thing, would be the position of someone opposed to both Lefebvre and uh, and Noonan, who is Hans Kuhn, who wrote a book shortly after the council on the need for a, Vatican, a third Vatican council because the council was too conservative. It was too much aligned with the past, as Ratzinger has argued, and to break with that as a negative value judgment on the council, we need to have a... The revolution wasn't completed. We need another more revolutionary event. Um, discontinuity as a bad thing would, of course, be the, the position of uh, Archbishop Lefebvre on, on a document like this one and would argue that there's a radical break between Vatican II and precedent teaching on, on, in some key ways that creates e- effectively deep turbulence in the claims about doctrinal development or organic development of continuity and, of course, There exists discontinuity and rupture, and it's a good thing would be a position like that of Noonan's, those who hold that the church, the spirit of the council, has to be understood. If you have the spirit in you, you understand that the council should be read really rightly as in some way non-organically and in discontinuity and in some kind of healthy, vibrant, revolutionary way, a break with many of the structures of the past. So I think that those, those ways of thinking, those four schemas, are helpful, and Kerr initiates us into that. Okay, I'm now going to ask our two uh, professors that I've mentioned, uh, who i, I won't, won't be introduced right now, you'll meet them later, but uh, Professor Hutter and Professor Mazaros, who are both expert on this topic, I'll ask them to come up here and sit uh, behind me on the panel, and we'll uh, take questions. If you want to just raise your hand, someone will bring you a microphone shortly.
1: your <laughs> issue <laughs> but for your comment. <laughs> um, so
2: I, I have two questions or, or, well and um, the first question is about the meaning of uh, human c uh, seven uh, tests I don't think that uh, this test have to be read as a a tool Uh, simply to check uh, for uh, good or bad uh, changes. And uh, I don't think that uh, this is uh, the human's understanding of uh, the test, but I cannot argue (coughs) for that. But I think uh, uh, it is uh, clear that uh, such understanding leads to uh, a kind of uh, theological constructivism that is very uh, far from from Newman's uh, position. Uh, And uh, my uh, second question is uh, related to uh, well it was a rather a rather comment, but the second is a, a question. And uh, is this uh, I think uh, it is clear that human has an understanding that revelation as an event it's not is not a process. Revelation is not a process, is an event. My question to the theologians, uh, beyond the uh, different questions you can uh, ask about uh, uh, this or that uh, uh, issue, is how um, I think it is there is a realization in, uh, in contemporary theology of the church as uh, believed by Christ uh, uh, to, uh, uh, but how is this realization of a church as a leading subject uh, throughout history with uh, the idea of revelation as an event and not as a cross? You,
0: uh, you might have something to say about that.
3: Thank you for the question. I, there's. Two, two things I would say. As to the first one about the notes, I think it's true that for Newman, uh, their utility is greater when they're seen to be applied retrospectively to something that has already occurred. So if you're looking at a doctrine, uh, the presumption has to already be in its favor in order to apply the notes. Uh, it's not the case that we have a hypothesis that we're going to decide on, and then we start applying the notes and then we can decide for or against, but rather there's a presumption. So the fact that the Necumenical Council had taught uh, or promulgated the entire so that alone already speaks presumptuously in favor. Uh, in terms of the, the second question on event or revelation and uh, the living a, a living community or a living church, um, I think the, the, the key distinction is between the object of faith and the subject who adheres to it and the, and the subject uh, who has an understanding which can grow and deepen, uh, whereas the truth to which one is adhering is one. Uh, in in Kongrad's book, Tradition and Traditions, he says uh, tradition is living because of the people who adhere to it, not because truth is living. And I think that he's laying hold of this distinction between the object and the subject.
0: I was also going to just make mention of Kongar. I think there are unresolved questions that Kongar points us toward in Tradition and Traditions because on the one hand, um, when you think about tradition as a handing on, then however loosely, and I think uh, Newman does allow us to have a fairly loose notion of it, but however loosely you use Newman's notes like preservation of type, or conservative action upon the past, or logic of the continuity of the idea in different contexts, there's still a kind of formal or exemplary measure so that the tradition is standing before us as something that anticipates and in a certain way gives a kind of form or measure to what comes later, however loosely we, we understand it, as where if you understand tradition as a dynamic activity, and I mean, I think tradition is a handing one, but was, as pointed out by Convart, it's also a dynamic activity in which the truth is manifest. And as Andrew's just said, it's not that the divine truth changes, but the subject of the church is changed and changes herself in perceiving the divine truth in more conceptually explicit ways, in new contexts and conditions, in new realizations of sanctity and example and as a dynamic activity of charity and trust in God uh, and through vibrant new formulations of liturgy and piety and art and expressiveness of culture and so there's a very complicated myriad of ways in which the subject of the church she lives the truth dynamically and vitally and communicates the truth dynamically and vitally in new forms in new eras and that's I think a frontier that Congar alludes us to, but and I, these two aspects of Congar's thought have to be held together, I think, because otherwise uh, you end up too much with presentialism and vitality on the one hand, or with a kind of a uh, you called it a theological constructivism. So.
1: Sorry for the English I I, uh, I have appreciated the uh, uh, this paper. Um, I am doing a study of the. Um, um, I'm comparison a uh, Newman uh, and Rather and Longerland uh, on the issue of the role of dark doctrine. Yes, I'm from um, I think that the question is the thematic of What is REPO? What is uh, the relationship between story and doctrine? Who comes first? because um, when we uh, read the documents of the Vatican II, we have uh, a clear spirit. Uh, we find the traditional teachings of the church is clear. But the question is, if the doctrine is an organic body that grows with us, um, when the council decided to stop This growing body. I'm I'm saying that um, somebody raised the Vatican II as something that uh, uh, makes the Church go back with uh, the teaching of the fathers of the Church. So this could be a contradiction with the growing uh, story of the Church. Because if we say um, it's going on, going farther, okay, but Mm, somebody's some theologians from my private, for example, they say, okay, this is the Vatican II, uh, uh, takes the church to the highest uh, mountains of the uh, father's theological, uh, uh, speculation. Or, I mean, sorry for my English, but I want to ask what is uh, a real reform? A real reform, I'm reform,
0: oh, yeah, uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh. yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, reform, right? So, it's story, is history, history, doctrine, reform. No, no, it's good. I mean, one thing, so I, I hear you alluding to a very widespread idea that the council is not simply a very significant instantiation of the church's doctrinal life or the most proximate council to us in history, which would be an argument for why it could be of a special importance to us in our age, and should be probably, but that the Council, the Second Vatican Council, is in a certain way a uniquely privileged embodiment of Catholicism, a measure against which everything in the tradition must be judged. It's interesting what you point out, because of course many people who are of the generation of Vatican II or just after the council not only hold that it's important because it's proximate to us or that it applies to our time, but that it is in some ways the key reform document in the history of the church that is to be a criteria for theological adjudication perennially. Uh, My own view of that is that that's a slightly unbalanced, exaggerated view and that it gives rise to a reaction, which is to say the council is uh, either of no importance or of equal importance to something that happened in, say, the, um, uh, you know, the Council of Florence or something. Um, and so then a dialectic ensues, and I, I think one of the problems is the notion of reform which notice that Benedict uses, but doesn't define. He talks about the hermeneutics of of reform within continuity. So that's not a teaching of the church that the Second Vatican Council is a reform. It's a theological opinion of Benedict. It's a theological opinion probably of Congar because he wrote the book, True and False Reform in the Church, which helped inspire the council. And I actually think that book is very helpful for making a discernment about your question, True and False Reform in the Church, then probably needs to be an updated reflection on it, since it was written before the council. But it seems to me that my own very easy, brief resolution of the existential and intellectual problem you pose, which is obviously ongoing in the church, is to say that in some ways this has been resolved concretely for the church by the 1992 Universal Catechism. Because the 1992 Universal Catechism was expressly, Crafted by Ratzinger with the team of theologians he worked with to assimilate the council, which is quoted in the catechism many times, I think the most of any council. Mm -hmm. But he had the express intention, which he told the theological editors of the catechism that he wanted uh, to inform the work, that it should treat the council as an important monument in the church's tradition, but not as a decisive criteria of truth but a criteria among others. And so I think in the balance, my personal opinion, in the theological balance balance and equilibrium of the catechism, you find a kind of hermeneutical solution to not reject the council or its importance for our contemporary moment uh, and to receive it, but to receive it with the tradition and to bring a lot of the elements of the tradition and the saints forward in our contemporary moment to read the Council. So it's going the other way as well. The tradition is being used now to read the Council, as the Council is being used to read the tradition, and the layering is fairly coherent and consistent. Now, is it perfect? No. But I think it's an intimation. I don't know what the word reform means, I admit that. But as for the problem of the criteria of the Council, I think that's one answer. Another answer could be the one, some people would say the encyclicals written by John Paul II are largely attempts to talk about how the Council could be received, and that's another possible discussion.
3: Just a very short comment
4: to reflect upon. If the Second Vatican Council were to be interpreted as uh, a meta-council, so to speak, its positions being a meta-position, It would effectively be the last council of the church. It would be the eschatological council, after which no other council could come. So it would be irreformable. So one has to think about that. The implication of that position is actually, in the end, I think, untenable. It contradicts the very nature of a council. Because after meta-council, you cannot have another meta-council, you have to be the (laughs) meta-meta-council. So you either stay in the the alleged spirit of that council, which is an eschatological spirit, and you have to rest there in that interpretation, but you cannot have another council. This is in a certain way, not at least deficiently Catholic, because it would preclude at least the logic. I'm only talking here about the logic one has to think through of that position.
3: A very quick comment. When you bring up true and false reform, I think there are some interesting parallels between the way Newman uses notes for authentic development and the way Kungar has his own notes for true reform, among them patience. Uh, he cannot violate the unity of the church. And he has his own set. So if you're looking for a STL thesis or something, maybe look at this. Thanks. Yes. So I'd like to, I'm not an expert on what the new analogy. Do you know I'm bring on?
5: a lot of the, uh, what the development of the country goes. Uh, Luna, I think, an interesting topic on the problem of error,
6: of mistakes. So,
5: in the sense that you try to say that the applications of certain doctrines, for example, he was taking the case of freedom of conscience and liberty and religious Uh, liberty, liberty, uh, religious freedom could be interpreted as some some kind of wrong application in certain historical time. In in that case, uh, during the 19th century, where a radio pluralistic society existed and in which it would seem like out of time to require a unity in the Catholic and uh, the union between Satan and Catholicism. So, I think you would seem then that in Nuna's on the view, and your uh, her paper handles the topic, even the development of doctrine could let have some space of saying, okay, so seeing things that seem contradictory in the past of what today is was place could um, be said as some kind of error of application and that's how uh, in the paper it is handled. But my question is that, taking that into consideration, shouldn't a development of doctrine um, theory also handle, the problem of error of interpretation? Mm-hmm. Meaning that shouldn't also maintain and ignore the um, errors or mistakes in the past. How do we handle them? How do we explain an And a proper development of doctrine to have some space of explaining those errors in the past? Or in what way do you see that? The problem of an of error.
0: I mean, I, just one simple answer is moral blindness. Because there's such a thing as inculpable ignorance in the life of the church. Um, the, the full truth of the gospel and the mystery of the charity of Christ is so incomprehensible and so extensive in its applications to our life that we, it's not just that we can't live it as fully as we ought to because of our sinfulness and our fragility as human beings, societies, and as a church, but we can't even acknowledge it, (coughs) I mean, culpably, like acknowledge our culpability fully, or there are times and places where we might be able to acknowledge it more fully under one aspect, but less fully under another. So, uh, I mean, if you take the the church's blindness on the care, the, the response to the crisis of pedophilia, okay, the church has operated with a very strong previous, strong sense of the importance of maintaining the visible honor or the visible social status of the church in society, and not entirely for bad reasons, I think it's fair to say, or the stability of the priesthood and the episcopacy as a common good when you have a minority of bad actors. But in doing so, the church has had a, I I think not just a culpable malice, but actually more commonly, at least in the distant past, a less culpable, Ignorance of the demands of charity with regards to victims. And as the you know, social situation has changed and the issue of, of abuse has been brought to light, the church has to deal with the issue not just in justice but also in understanding, in understanding. And so what we're dealing with now globally is a, is a progressive enlightenment, a sensitization of the conscience with regards to principles of charity, justice, and truth in the episcopacies of the world church. And it is partly due to changing circumstances, but it's in these new circumstances, we're seeing a dimension of the challenge of the church's internal transparency and fidelity to the gospel. And I think you could do similar things with torture. We inherited Roman torture uh, as a civic practice, and it took centuries for the church to see that it was not it was not only not essential to the practice of the adjudication of uh, individuals under um, who, who it was claimed had done things wrong, or who had done things wrong, but that it was in fact, it's in, in some ways, at least certain forms of it, I think it's uncontroversial to say, at least certain forms of what we call classically torture are intrinsically evil. And so, you know, there's a gradual awakening of the conscience in the life of the church.
3: Thank
6: you very much. When questioning the utility of the knowledge uh, Test, of tests and of development, it's probably good to remember that um, Newman, as you say, came to the truth of the Catholic faith through spiritual. Uh, he came to know simply that it was true. He assented simply to it, but then needed a way to to understand how it was true. And, and I wonder if a particular reading. Of the essay, and epistemological particularity of the essay actually resolves this question of utility for notes. because if we know by our proximity to God leads us to the truth, and then we work out reflexively how we know that truth, then we formulate the criteria retrospectively, rather than um, rather than projecting these criteria onto new developments, which will come by our proximity and our faithfulness to God, not by intellectual brilliance or... Um, so is it that the Church, by being close to God, ascertains new understandings of Revelation Then, needs to reflect in a complex way how to justify that. And that's when the criteria of tests like Newman come, come to view. Uh,
4: that truly is a, a good way to, to look at it, uh, globally. I mean, uh, Newman came through to his insights through through study, through reflection, through prayer. And then in the book, for himself and for others, he gave a retrospective account of the defense of the position of the Catholic, of the development of the Catholic Church as authentic. The audience of the development of doctrine, the 1845 edition, was for the Anglicans. It was for an Anglican audience, for his friends, the Tractarians, and for other Anglicans, basically to justify his position to give an account. original tests at the time used were developed criteria. Now, later on, talk a little bit about that. I think a background figure is Vincent of Larin. He used him in his earlier 1837 work extensively, and he's again, in a, in a, in a more invisible way, present in the development of doctrine. And the seven uh, notes, or tests, echo uh, Vincent of Lorraine's second rule, the rule of development of doctrine actually, and developed, uh, so that's one way we need to keep in mind how Vincent is present actually in, in the work. But it works primarily retrospectively, you're right. Uh, it is not at all another set of criteria, so to speak, to project forward developments to, to uh, so to speak, uh, be, the, be the guides for the developers of doctrine as we might look into the future. That would be a profound misunderstanding uh, of, the, of the notes.
0: Okay, thank you very much for your engagement.